Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. I would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Tongva and the Shumash on which this podcast is being recorded. Land acknowledgements are acts of reconciliation that involve recognizing the traditional territory of the indigenous people who called the land home before the arrival of colonizers, and in many cases still do call it home. The Shumash Indian Museum, located in Thousand Oaks, California, is dedicated to restoring and preserving an awareness of the Shumash people. It is owned and operated by the 501c3 Oakbrook Park Shumash Indian Corporation. Please consider visiting their website to become a member or to make a donation. In this episode, I speak with director, creative producer, and writer, Jamie Starboyski, about the origins of Pride in Manchester, England, his founding of the Queer Media Film Festival, his intersectional approach to teaching new media, and his new virtual reality project, Therese and Peta, A Tale of Two Spirits, which tells the story behind the iconic 1991 Time Magazine photo that became known as the face of AIDS. Because in conversations with Jamie, Peta described that time as a moment they felt free. This week's song is Belinda Carlisle's Live Your Life, Be Free. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in August, 2020. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about like how we met. Um, we met virtually uh, via Sheffield. And um, what were you doing at Sheffield this year? Yeah, so we've not actually met in person yet because of COVID-19 has shut down all the festivals. But luckily, we met as part of Sheffield International Documentary Festival's Alternate Realities Talent Market. And you were one of the industry decision makers. I had a VR project and we had a great meeting on Zoom. Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. And it was actually, this is my first time meeting with filmmakers um, who are doing VR projects. And I was a little nervous because this is, was kind of like out of my wheelhouse, but all the projects were um, amazing. And you really, I think as a creator of a VR project, you really have to do, um, extra work in regards to setting what the story is going to be and really painting a picture. Um, because um, when, if just for the folks out there, when people submit um, and apply for these um, various markets, they send in materials. Um, and for using for film, it's a clip, um, as well as a, a write-up. But with VR projects, a lot of times they're so early on that um, there may not be any footage um, available or it may be like something like very rudim rudimentary um, that can help give a hint of what the actual VR experience is. But um, you, you all as VR filmmakers or VR creators really have to um, step in to kind of create that world. Absolutely. It's, it's all part of trying to convey a world with world builders and world creators because what you're going to do when you're a participant in VR is you've got a 360 vision. You're not fixed in a seat facing a silver screen. And so the user journey describing that and also the feelings and emotions you get with that because a lot of people looking into virtual reality might be thinking about it the token word being empathy machine and so you get a lot more feeling and it's more empowering 
to do that. So I had to very quickly, so simply and respectfully through a project, describe the user journey through the piece, which can be through several rooms, meeting several protagonists. And so the journey described it as a story can often be quite different. Right, right. And I was really impressed that you all were able to do that. But also there's like a bit of an education piece that you all have to do too, as far as like explaining the tech piece. <laughs> to like someone like me who is a lay person who is new to the space and um, I feel like you all uh, all the projects who I met with did a really great job at kind of like breaking that all those complexities down so like I really I, I really appreciate it and I, I learned I learned a lot um, mm -hmm. but before we get into your amazing project um, tell us when pride is in the UK because like pride is uh, different months in different countries <laughs> Yeah, and in the US, you always um, celebrate it in um, June, I believe. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Ma Manchester in, in England, where I'm actually based, their pride is actually at the end of August. It's more towards like, I think it's your Labor Day. Um, and actually, it's just generally, it depends how pride started. So um, the end of August is a bank holiday. So traditionally, everybody would have Monday off. Um, and so Manchester Pride started from doing a jumble sale um, like thrift store stuff was on sale on the, on the gay village streets with little stalls and that's uh, built up into a parade for the city and then parties and club nights um, since the 30 years it was established. Oh, the, the 1930s? No, over 30 years. Oh, for 30 was, years. I'm like, whoa, that's great. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That'd be very early developers if it was in the 30s, yes. yes. <laughs> for 30 years. Okay, great, great. So in um, Manchester, is there um, a, a version of like what we have here in West Hollywood? West Hollywood is the LGBTQIA neighborhood. Um, so you, we all, mostly LGBTQIA owned businesses and um, folks live there. Is that, is there like the place you mentioned in Manchester? Is it something like that? So Manchester is in the northwest of England. It's famous for being a very industrial city. And so because it's industrial, it's got warehouses. And a lot of uh, LGBTQ folks met in these warehouses sort of covertly, historically, because the, these were where they could meet in secret. There was sort of pubs and bars, which were a bit more down the um, sidewalk and secret. Um, that then developed into a gay village that was supported by the council. Um, so that's how they had investments with bars and clubs. And a lot of uh, your audience based in the US who have watched Queer as Folk, the US version, who have then been inspired to watch the British version. The British version is set in Manchester. So we, we inspired that story. So Russell T. Davis originally um, told that story in the British series, was inspired by going clubbing in Manchester. So we've got the second biggest LGBT community outside of London. Um, we, have, we have a gay village all based around one street called Canal Street. And we also have the LGBT Foundation, which is like the community centre hub like you have in LA. Right. Okay, great. 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 That's awesome. Yeah, um, I used to live in Hollywood and um, Renell actually lives in Hollywood now and like right around the corner from uh, where I live was a big um, LGBT um, center. And I think it includes like a homeless shelter for youth as well. It's so impressive. I mean, I actually interned with Outfest in 2014 and I was doing um, LGBT studies at UCLA. And so 
my whole summer I spent in Westwood um, for about four months. So I know the area very, very, very well and that got a great affection for Los Angeles. Um, and I know that your LGBT centre, I did a tour of it and we had medical services, counselling services. And then I actually got an art centre in another district. We've got like a, a so I went to see a film there and there was some, there's an art gallery as well. And I was like, this is so impressive. And then when opposite, uh, the gentleman giving the tour was like, they're going to build um, accommodation for LGBTQ elders opposite. Mm -hmm. That's right. And yeah, because there in Hollywood, there <laughs> is like a, a, a senior housing. Yes. Wow. It's probably been built now. And yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been there for a, a while. Yeah. The show Transparent, they um, I know they shot a few scenes there. So tell me about your journalism background. Well, my journalism background, I have worked in online news. I'm really inspired by the fact that there's all these digital platforms, digital content, and the ways you can tell your story. I know on your Instagram, that's one of your hashtags, tell your story. You know, I founded my own company after going, my own nonprofit, after going to the University of Salford and doing a broadcast journalism degree. Um, I'm really inspired by the fact that you've got the facilities and the tools to tell your story in your hands with your own mobile phone. Um, so I did the journalism degree at the University of Salford. And at the same time, I went to a TEDx uh, in Salford and was the author, Joanne Harris. And she wrote the novel, Chocolate. And her TEDx talk, Changing the World One Story at a Time, is what, is what got me to start my nonprofit, Queer Media. And we've then, from that, started to do LGBT events, festivals, workshops and performances. So that's where the inspiration of telling your story, utilizing platforms. We teach mobile filmmaking, we've done workshops on podcasting and also workshops in virtual reality. And really that started eventually over the years to segue into us creating our own um, storytelling projects in digital. Right, so, so your focus um, has always been um, on this new media. Yeah, because the thing is, it's so accessible. There's a democratizing of the ability to tell stories for the use of just mobile phones and digital tech. But many people have got access to at least some form of mobile phone. Um, and then it's just the case of learning film language and editing skills. You know, you've always got somebody really important behind the scenes who has to look at the rushes, edit it down. And so that's a skill set you can learn to be able to tell those short stories. I mean, like Outfest, they have a competition now, don't they, where you can submit a film that's just 60 seconds. And I'm always really impressed on my YouTube channel how you can tell a story in just, just 60 seconds. And it's a diverse story as well. And it's so well thought out. Now that skill is uh, multiplied by people telling stories on Instagram and now TikTok. Um, so one of the workshops were held at the Queen Media Festival that I started annual event was workshops in mobile filmmaking so I labeled it mob doc basically because as we both love as a documentary the emphasis is on using mobile phone to tell documentary stories because often you've got the extra and you don't have the extra layer doing um, writing characters making, making a drama a story can essentially be your story and it's just uh, giving you the skills to know how to do exposure focus editing um, how to shoot and which directs the shooting, Get, telling people the concept of cutaways 
so you can vary what you're seeing on screen. Um, so MobDoc is a workshop that I've held with my colleague, um, Deidre Mulhaney. She's 15 years experience as a camera person working, working for the BBC. And what we did is we held the workshop during the Queen Media Festival I started, then we toured it to Cardiff. We've also flown out to Dublin in Ireland. And that's where we try and talk, teach people queer intersectionality and the storytelling that you need to think of. So I usually use things like, what sort of stories do you see on screen a lot? Let's rewind and what stories do you not see? It's um, really directing them to um, be very conscious of what's absent. Yeah, so uh, in, if I was uh, curating films like I've done for the festival, uh, if I'm looking at a selection of short films, for example, of what's uh, doing a festival skirt circuit, often you would have things skewed where it will be stories about men. So there'll be less stories about women. I and mean, then if you're taking stories about women, there'll be um, less stories about um, women of color, for example. Then if it's trans stories, there'll be more focus of uh, stories of trans women and not of trans men. So if you think about sort of stories you hear, most of the dialogue will be stories around trans women, trans men are lost in that dialogue, and trans, trans people of color beyond that. Um, often you've got stories of trans people that pass and then you've not got people who are on that sort of, um, you know, binary passing with their gender identity. And so we really, it's a chance to just explore the notion of what intersectionality is. So even if you're LGBTQ identified, there might be you've not actually um, interrogated, you know, what lens you're looking through, what's your internal bias, right. and, and what you know, you might want to make a film which is about yourself or your immediate friends or your immediate family, which is great because that's powerful, that's your story, but also within that sort of system of what stories you want to tell, just have a thought and a notion of what other stories are not out there. And right. maybe through research, there's a story in your community or local to your city or through your extended friends that's just not being told, that really pops, but really is like, why is this not being told? Um, so there you've got, and you're adding something then, you know, realistically to the community because you're given a, a platform and a voice for this story, but also in a sort of very um, straight nosed career direction sort of view. You're doing something different that nobody else says. So in terms of career path, that can elevate you, but also you're there supporting the community and making a difference. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's really um, interesting, you bringing up the, um, essentially the idea of interrogating one's internal biases. Um, do you, when you're teaching these workshops, um, do you find that there are ways in which people struggle with that? I think people, have not actually, um, with interrogating biases and the lens that they have, they've not, they've not had that uh, reflection brought to them. But so it's it, very much you have to rewind it. As me, I've been operating in LGBTQ storytelling for a number of years now. And what I would think is just natural and a, and a given, I've always got to remind myself is I've got to rewind it to people who have not had that sort of discussion before. And, and really just to give them a, I don't, an opportunity in an open dialogue to sort of question, make mistakes, you know, be curious, have some wonder, and just 
start discussing the ways in which things are, um, are systematically um, stories are lost. Right, exactly. That's very that's very powerful because um, that's a discussion that's um, I think beginning to be happening happening in the wider documentary community, um, particularly here in the U.S. right now in the current climate with the pandemic and the the protest um, around the the murder of George Floyd and um, also questions around authorship um, because they're in the U.S., there has unfortunately been a practice of, um, I would call it extractive storytelling, where people who are not part of communities are coming in and, and parachuting, parachuting in to tell stories that aren't theirs and then moving out. Um, and, you know, they don't hire, for example, if they're in a working on a story about Native Americans, you know, there's like no Native American crew at all. And like, no, it's very much as voyeuristic, like looking in looking at these group of people as an other and not considering um, their um, their agency, you know. Um, so that's a discussion that's being um, held, like basically in interrogating that and challenging that and really not accepting that anymore. Um, but it's really pervasive in the documentary space here because these, these particular filmmakers who do go in and parachute are usually big names um, and they get all the funding and they get all the recognition and they get all the um, the the um, the accolades um, so it's not only just interrogating those filmmakers but also interrogating those systems that support those filmmakers which is yeah. something that's, yeah. that's that's new well also when you're saying that about the systems are supporting this they get the accolades you know but really when you're producing, a, telling a story and producing a piece of content, it's what is the focus of that piece? What is important to you? And so when I'm looking at intersectional diverse storytelling, it's making something that's resonant and powerful for the community as a whole, you know, lasting impact, something which people can really connect with. That's, from what you've described there, sounds like the system of we're just going to make something and pop it on a shelf for people to watch later on Amazon Prime or Netflix and move on to the next project. What I'm really interested in through my festival is giving people sort of inspiration and then the skills and the know-how to actually start to tell stories. So you've got to do it collaboratively because often with think, when you're making content, you need somebody in front of the camera and then someone behind. It's very difficult to do all those jobs when you're doing a much larger feature film or a longer podcast to do it single-handedly. So you've always got to have that collaborative step in. And what I'm learning more and more with doing storytelling is there needs to be a step, fundamental step built in beforehand, before you dive straight in, extracting the stories, telling a story which might not necessarily you have great knowledge about or you connected wholly to the community, building like a legacy protocols, what you want to do to achieve that before, to get full permission from that community, full understanding from that community. And because um, in my VR project, um, the, the, one of the stories it features, like for example, a Native American, before I'm even diving into telling that story or even attempting to, I've been dialing into like the live streams from Sundance where they've been doing discussions with indigenous storytellers to say, how do you navigate this space and what do you need to consider? Because 
one of your previous episodes, but you were talking to with um, Sonia, episode four, big up episode four. It makes me realize that like, you know, film as a, as a story platform was inherently built within white supremacist narratives. So me as a white, cis, queer man has just got to realize that I'm, st I'm utilizing a form of storytelling which is um, fundamentally in, em empowered with these, with these people. Um, so I've just got to be more mindful. And, and also it's good when you're telling stories just to take a step back. Don't go diving in. Take a, take a step back. It's also from your own like, self-care. It's taking a step back to just consider where you're going with the head in and direction of things. You feel more confident, um, you're more relaxed, and you're built in the systems, which means your content has a better impact, rather than make, making something which ultimately, when it goes on screen, gets criticised. You don't, you wouldn't want, you won't want that. You want it to be a positive impact and have a, a brilliant legacy. It's also a question of like, really understanding who your audience is and you know I've, I've had in my day job i've had those conversations with filmmaker because like in my um in my day job i do i read proposals <laughs> like that's what i do i read proposals i evaluate proposals i provide filmmakers with detailed notes on those proposals and the ones that engage in the extractive storytelling um i really when i've had conversations with, with those filmmakers i've really had to interrogate them to to get them clear on who their audience is because they, a lot of people would say everybody. And then what they mean is like, in, in the cases when they're parachuting into communities of color is white folks. And when I ask the questions, okay, well, how do these, how would the communities benefit from this film? They really have no answer to that. Or they'll say something to the, uh, to the fact that, oh, we'll, we'll raise awareness. And I'll say, well, these communities who are having this experience, they're already aware. So what else? <laughs> you know, um, but it also speaks to um, what for me is um, like when you talk about your process as a filmmaker, I mean, that's really um, a process based in, in curiosity and a desire to learn and like a, and a desire to challenge one's assumptions. And that's, that's how I, I come to the work. Um, I've gotten to documentary via archival research, but I went back to school to get a master's of visual anthropology. And I did a film on um, black vegans in Los Angeles. And I knew a lot about veganism, um, but I had to like, as you, as you said, um, step back and okay, look at, when I was looking at who my audience was, okay, I wanted it to this to my audience to be not only black vegans, but black folks who were curious about veganism. So I had to step back in the film and said, okay, I know I'll have to explain what, what veganism is. But um, I also had to do a lot to um, challenge my assumptions um, because I went in with like black vegans, primarily vegans for health reasons. And I, but I knew, but I went in and when I was finding people, I 
found folks who are not only human rights activists, but animal rights activists, you know, and creating these communities of color. So um, it's like being curious and asking the questions, but also I looked at what was out there. That's the first thing I did. I said, okay, I'm doing a film about black vegans. What films about black vegans are out there? And I kind of did a catalog and um, had in my mind, okay, this is what's done. This is what I like about it. This is what I don't like about it. This is what I want to do. And I find it so surprising when I read proposals where people clearly haven't done that. They, they haven't done that research. I mean, it, particularly in the context of like Native American communities. I mean, they will say things like, um, there's never been a film done about this. And it's like about Pine Ridge, you know, and they've been <laughs> like, how many documentaries have been about Pine Ridge? And they haven't done like a basic Google search. And it's almost like this idea that because I haven't heard of it, therefore no one has heard of it. And like, I don't, like, I don't think that way. It's, if I haven't heard of, if I come to something, I said, if I haven't heard of it, then I said, oh, let me find a book about it or see what's out there about it. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's really tricky, like trying to get people to kind of um, not only decenter themselves, but also question, question what they know. Yeah, that, yeah, that's part of the journey. That's part of the fun and, and the research, because I've come from a background of loving history and archive. You know, I could go to an old library, go to an old museum, and I'm in my best space, living my best life, yes. <laughs> looking at all these un untold stories in this dusty space. Um, and that's why I like the juxtaposition of um, digital, because you've got the history of the archive and you're helping to lift it off the page with digital. Um, in terms of looking at stories we're not told, I mean, because we were part of Sheffield Documentary Festival, we got access to their portal of films and immediately I'm looking through all the amazing stories and there's several that are Native American. And also um, indigenous too, and like from around, this communities from around the world. Yeah, so um, tell me about your festival. So um, in 2014, I had my first uh, festival. I called it Queer Media because I was going to college at uh, Media City, which is the new Northwest home of the BBC. And some media, we're trying to say that it's um, things like podcasting, virtual reality, augmented reality, mobile filmmaking, animation. And the festival happens in the fall and it's a celebration showing doing screenings of films, uh, workshops, such as mobile filmmaking with MobDoc, teaching how to make your own film. Um, we've got performances. Like last year, it was uh, 20 years since the British Queer Folk was uh, on, on, on TV. So we had um, a drag queen come in and perform as one of the, uh, as the mother. Tell us that queen's name. Uh, it's Miss Blair. So Miss Blair, Miss Blair performed as um, Hazel. So probably the name was changed in the US version, but Hazel was uh, Vince's mother in uh, Queer as Folk UK. And she came on and sang, and I don't know if the US one has a scene where the mother is on stage singing karaoke. And then the younger man was like, oh, look, look at that idiot. Doesn't she look so stupid? And then the other friends are like, yep, that, that's his mom. <laughs> so she did a uh, she, Miss Blair did a drag version of that scene in the cinema. So we showed some archive episodes of Queer as Folk, and then in between, she rushed out on stage and performed in drag. And then we we're like back on with the screening. 
Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and Russell T. Davis and um, Red Productions uh, did know about it and wished as well. So that was really great, you know, considering my personal journey as was I'd not actually come out at the point when it was first screened. And then further down the line, here we am with a drag uh, performance and screening archive episodes with my parents in the audience. Oh, wow. <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit. So for those who um, don't know, what's the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality? The difference between it, I mean, of course, this is all very new. Probably with people, have, I feel, I've probably got the same skills as every other lay person out there. And I'm learning as well, because there's many different forms, mixed reality, augmented, virtual. Virtual tends to be we put the headset on and your eyes are literally completely covered. And so the virtual space is the fake environments that you see in the lenses. Um, augmented is things like Snapchat filters, where if I was filming you, we could put you with little puppy dog ears or put animal faces over the top, which would move in time with you talking to me. So there's a layer of reality with a, a, with a layer of digital over the top. So best way is to just think of Instagram filters or Snapchat. That's augmented reality. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That is very, very clear. Um, so um, tell us about um, funding, um, funding schemes for um, projects in the UK, because um, in the US, you really, really have to hustle to get money for your documentaries. So um, gone are the days where you can um, rely on just applying for traditional documentary grants. Um, you have to do that, those are still available, but they're incredibly competitive. Um, but most filmmakers do some combination. They have a really diversified fundraising screen that includes grants, um, crowdfunding, um, people are getting into corporate sponsorships. So if they're, film or their project kind of fits in with uh, the mission of a particular company, not like anything like advertising or marketing in that regard, but, you know, getting support on that level. Investing is becoming part of the conversation in the documentary space. I mean, that's something that's been happening for the past, I would say, two years, even though it's kind of shut down with COVID. Um, and But also community partnerships as well. Um, so tell us a little bit about funding, because in the US, we have this perception that in Europe, or particularly like some Northern European countries, um, it's a lot easier for artists to get support for their um, for their documentary projects. So in, in the UK specifically for documentary funding, there's, uh, there's Doc Society, which have specifically funding for documentaries. Um, then there's the British Film Institute. Um, so that's the government funded arm, which is focused on film. Um, We've also got Creative England, which is screen-based content. So not specifically film, but it's got to be for a screen. And so then that, that's something that people who want to go into with digital or virtual reality can apply for. Um, and what those were one of the people I met at Sheffield DocFest was representatives from Creative England. So um, we, we, we've just uh, left Europe, otherwise we will be saying you could get money from the European Union as, mm. as an option. But not anymore. Um, Brexit. But not anymore. <laughs> Hashtag Brexit. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of making your film and uh, funding, what 
especially with talking about mobile filmmaking is, is I've always been inspired by people who've made stuff on an uber small budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and the technology is there to actually make a film that's just um, with resolution high enough to show on a big screen, but right. aren't made on a mobile phone. So one film that's particularly was documentary that I really inspired by is one called The Collectors. So The Collectors is a documentary about people who've got really goofy, quirky, um, hobbies where they collect one single thing so the hobby was that one man had uh, collect really small cars and he had them all in his attic thousands and thousands of these toy cars like you get when you're a little boy another one was this uh, lady who used to fly to New York um, every year and she'd buy Coca-Cola merchandise for her whole house a whole house is Coca-Cola um, merchandise now, Eleanor Mangian, who made this film, and she works for um, RTS in Ireland, which is like the PBS in the United States. So it, yeah, so it's like BBC, it's publicly funded broadcasting, and The Collectors was their, their first film that was completely made on mobile phone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, it's, and, it, and it's an hour. It's an hour documentary, so it's not a short thing, and it was broadcast on public television. And so, what, yes, there is public funding, um, and of course, that that route is the, the route very difficult to travel, as we know, doing, doing the host, doing the hustle. But also, I'm really inspired by people who can do it by modifying the technology you use, by shoots on a mobile phone. If you get a super um, up-to-date phone, you can shoot in 1080. So, like even like a, a Apple or an Android, you know, you can you can do that. And so what about the, the lenses? Do people invest in special lenses for these phones to shoot? Um, often what they do is it's in a, the money goes on the edit afterwards. So they might do, um, so we might do um, improved sound, we might do extra coloring on the film, but essentially it has been filmed on a mobile phone, but there's a rig around it to improve the quality and texture of what's been recorded. Right. So do you find, um, and it may be too early to ask this question, do you find that some of the um, funding entities, now that people can now shoot on phones on smaller budgets, are like decreasing um, their, um, the grants that they give or making them less because like, okay, we know you could shoot on a smaller budget, so do that? <laughs> I don't know if um, the fact that you can shoot on phones has has whittled down the opportunities because there's also that sort of snobbery of needs to be shot on the technology and the cameras necessary. Um, It depends how um, much you're you're willing to push it yourself creatively and whether that's possible. So when the director of Tangerine came to Manchester and described making of that film, he said that he made that film as a second choice because he couldn't get funding for his first film because he was a new filmmaker. So he made Tangerine using mobile filmmaking because it was uber um, easy with the budget, showed that he was got the skills as a filmmaker and then got the funding to do the film he originally wanted to. Okay, that's good so when that- it works out like that. <laughs> Yeah, that was his, that was his tactics. Um, Sean Baker, so Sean Baker described how that was a tactic he involved to actually make his filmmaking career kick off. So I kind of want to tell like why I actually wanted to meet with you 
um, because and probably you know give a little setup for some folks who may not be aware of this photograph. Um, so um, in the 1990s, um, Bennington Clothing Company. I don't know whether they still exist, but they were really big in the, in the 1990s. Um, did a did an ad that featured a man who was um, dying of AIDS on his deathbed, and I may tear up a little bit because um, I remember like when I um, first saw that um, it was I think it was, for me it was the first time I saw um, anyone who was. Um, really in, the, in that process of dying. And there is a sacredness to it. There is a beauty to it, but also more powerful. The most powerful thing was that this is a man who is dying of AIDS at a time in the US. And like this wasn't that long ago where um, people with um, AIDS and HIV were um, really ostracized. And in this photograph, he's surrounded by his family and they're, they're touching him and they're caring for him. And um, in, the, in the 1980s, for those of you who don't, don't know, um, when the AIDS crisis began, um, it was ignored by the United States government. Ronald Reagan was president. He refused to utter the words um, AIDS or HIV. Um, there was, there not only was a lack of funding, but um, there was a refusal to help people because, you know, they were, um, people were bigoted against gay folks. And they were, they, and there's assumption that this is like a punishment from God, and therefore they should suffer. Um, so um, this photo was um, incredibly powerful. And um, when I saw your project, I was like, oh my God, I had to meet this guy. I had to meet Jamie. And then at first, I, I've been meeting with filmmakers, like so many filmmakers this year, like online. And I was thinking that, oh, you're like, you were, I was going to be meeting you at Hot Docs because I was had signed up for both of those at the same time. And I went through my Hot Docs meeting. And I was like, where is that film? Because I could not remember the name of it. I was like, oh my God, I'm so disappointed. I missed the meeting. And then Shuffle came. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't miss it. Um, and so you, with this VR project, are telling the story about um, this amazing, this beautiful, beautiful photo. Um, so first, I actually kind of just want to talk about the folks in the photo. And um, first, um, tell us about David Kirby, who is the man who um, was dying, dying of AIDS. Um, and I did not realize that he was actually an activist. Sure. So thank you for meeting with me at Sheffield and I'm glad we've got connected from that so, to talk about um, the story of the Face of AIDS photograph, which has been chosen as one of Time magazine's top 100 images of the 20th century. It's really quite iconic. Like you say, Tony, it was utilized by Benetton in 1992 in a billboard marketing campaign. I mean, also, prior to that, in 1990, it was published as a double-page spread in Life magazine. So that's where it was originally featured in public media. Um, 
Therese Frere has uh, took the picture originally and we're working with her to tell the story of the people who are instrumental in this image being taken. So in the image, when people look at it, you'll see that it's David Kirby and he's about to pass away. And this picture was taken with the family's consent and David's as well. So around the bed, you'll see that there's David and then there's Bill, his dad, and then there's Susan, his sister, with her daughter, Sarah. Um, David's uh, mother, Kay, is out of shot. <clears throat> now, when you look at the image as well, also, you'll see on the far left-hand side, there's a pair of hands. And that's the hands of Peter, which is the caregiver and nurse who worked at Paternoster Hospice, who cared for David. And again, has literally been framed out of the image. Um, so David, Kate wanted to come back and pass with his family, with his family's care there by his side. And this was taken at Paternoster Hospice. This is a home, this is a hospice. It's not a hospital because there's a lot of prejudice in um, publicly run hospitals. And so Barb Cordell founded this hospice in a, in a wooden home in Columbus, Ohio. And so these people I've mentioned are the key protagonists in our VR story, basically. But you get to sort of have a dialogue with, you get to see them in action because the hospice was busy with lots of volunteers. You see, and also Therese Fair was there with, working with Peter because we were best friends and buddies. And she took loads of pictures. This image is actually the single image. The face page has, has been seen by a billion people Time magazine estimate. So it's had a huge footprint, a huge impact. And it was taken in May 1990. So all those years later, people are still messaging Therese Frere to say what that picture meant to them as a family. It's given them a dialogue, an image, a source to actually talk to the next generation about what happened to their siblings, you know, in the family, to talk about the AIDS crisis. So it's been a way that people have been able to communicate and open up. It, it was so powerful at the time because it was, like you said, one of the first things in media which gave a human face to AIDS. Previously, you'd had these public information broadcasts about the scariness of AIDS. AIDS was, you know, this thing that people needed to be aware of and worried about. At the time when science, it wasn't really understood how it was um, transmitted as well, because also we were looking back now and remembering that combination therapy as any source to treat HIV was not in, um, even discovered until 1996. So that's when treatment started to become available. So with this being 1990, anybody who ha had AIDS and HIV, that could be a very life-threatening condition. I mean, there was a lot, there was a lot of fear, um, like rooted in not knowing how the disease was tran transmitted, but also a lot of fear rooted in prejudice. So, um, oh my God, I feel so old saying this. I, well, back in the day, they, you know, there were some funeral homes were refusing to bury people who had um, AIDS and HIV. Um, that That's how like fearful people were of it. And I was actually, I'm currently watching films for, um, Make Docs is a documentary um, film festival in um, Macedonia. Waste number four, um, New York, New York. It's a Finnish film by John Ias. And um, in the film, I didn't even know this, but in the film, there's this um, island off the coast of New York City called Heart Island. And apparently it can be seen from space. And it's the largest um, 
burial ground in the United States because it's where um, it's, a, it's considered a potter's field. So it's where prisoners who don't have family who are buried, homeless people who are identified or buried. And they actually, it's a beautiful film, but they actually mention um, the first baby with um, who was diagnosed with AIDS who died. Um, and the baby was two months old. It, he died in 1985. And rather than bury, being buried six feet under, he was buried like 14 feet under because there was this worry that because he had AIDS that it would like contaminate the corpses, the other corpses or the other. And it just, even though it doesn't seem like that long ago, um, that level of fear around the disease um, and people who had it. And, and because there was no treatment, you know, people would get diagnosed and they would just be gone you know um so it was really a uh, scary time so I, I think a lot of the younger lgbt folks out there with now that we have things like prep and that type of thing they think oh i well i don't know if they think this i could just like take this pill but um we've come a long way um in that regard and um go ahead so we've, we've, we've come a long way i mean of course our understanding has increased some of the drugs that are, are there, but also people, some communities think that AIDS is an old issue, you know, it's kind of gone away. And so in some instances, um, AIDS has actually increased in the younger generation. You know, what we've got here in, in the UK, we've got charities which work with people who uh, have got AIDS. There's the Terence Higgins Trust, there's a George House Trust lo local to Manchester. And so it's still a, an issue of people, that, you know, people who've survived the AIDS crisis, who were from that generation, who have got to now uh, live in old age, living with HIV and AIDS. And so that's, that's one thing to, to think about is, you know, how do we support that community and also make people still aware? I mean, just going back to back in the day, you know, but women who are diagnosed with HIV and AIDS, normally because of the symptoms for women specifically were not understood in quite the same context, they were diagnosed late. And so their, treat, that their um, life expectancy or possibility of treatments was a lot more diminished because of a lack of understanding. Because again, the focus was on men. Uh, you see, so there wasn't really understanding the wider remit of um, care. So why did you opt to do this as a VR project rather than like a traditional film? The reason that I was really interested to really just, uh, in the first instance, tackle this topic is because I watched a film called Dreams of a Life and it was by Carol Morley. And it's a sort of a, like a dramatized documentary and it's basically about a woman called Joyce Vincent. And she was found years later, she passed away, but her body was discovered in her flat, undiscovered. And it had been there for years. And nobody had actually cared to actually say, where is this person? No one had gone looking for her. She'd just passed away. And then we found all the mail stacked up behind the door. What Carol Morley did is she, uh, there was this news article about Joyce saying someone in a very small corner of the newspaper had passed, but nobody actually understood the person. So this documentary talks about the person um, and, and really talks to their friends, 
their family, what life they lived. And then afterwards, I just walked out of that and I, and I came across through another project, this image. And I just thought you could really touch and talk about this image, which essentially is about death and a tragic moment in somebody's life and fill it out in more of a 360 sort of perspective, much like Carol Morley had done and treat it with empathy and affection. You know, the, the whole piece that we've sort of thought through with the VR project is to tell a story that gives you hope, healing and humanity because here you've got Barb who founds a hospice all on her own. She's got backgrounds of being a nurse and it's for people who were instrumental in this story being told. Now, if you do a Google search on this image, but that image comes up, but also subsequent images which show a wider shot and show more of the people in the room. And so immediately I start to think in a sort of a 360 context. So I've got the tone from Carol Morley's uh, film. I've got a 360 worldview from looking at other shots of the photographs. And the more I go, go down this journey, we were talking about intersectional diverse stories. When you discover that the hands on the left-hand side are Peter, and Peter is a two-spirit Native American. And then you're just like, hold on, this is somebody who's literally framed out of the image. And this story, having worked with uh, trans people in Manchester and their stories and screened trans films in my Queer Media Festival, you become alert and aware to these stories are not being told. And I suddenly felt intrigued and I just wanted to know more. And so I basically, after attending a conference on mobile filmmaking, contacted Therese Frere and was like, hey, I'm really interested in doing more of a, a virtual immersive story around your photograph. And she was really interested in the slant being more on Peter, whose story has never been told. And so that's what we're attempting to do. And so that's why the piece, the, the piece is called Therese and Peter, A Tale mm. of Two Spirits. It, it was it's a play on words, basically. Yeah, there's two spirits. Is it like Therese and Peter because they've both got a strong friendship? Or is it two spirits as in the gender identity of Peter? Right. So um, tell us about Peter. Tell us about the bearer of the, those hands. So Peter is a, an amazing character who, whenever I've talked to anybody from that time period who worked with, worked with him, is extremely memorable, very feisty, very opinionated, very heartfelt, very loving, very caring. So when he was there, it was um, like the shoulder you needed when it's tragic and hard times, because through Peter's care, love and support, he helped David sort of accept his fate, you see, and so helped nurture him into accepting the, you know, passing, with dignity, with love, with care. And so Peter was fundamental in providing that support for not just David, but for many other people that passed away at Paternoster Hospice. And Peter and uh, Therese just became sort of kindred spirits. Um, and Peter has sent many letters back in the day, which Therese has kept of the affection, which illustrates the affection they, they shared. I mean, they went out clubbing together. They went out shopping for wigs. Um, they, they stayed over together. And she was hanging out with him the night that David passed away. And it was only because they were best friends and buddies that she was actually in the building in the hospice 
for the picture to be taken. So if that friendship of Tweez and Peter didn't exist, Tweez and her camera would not have been at Paternoster Hospice. Wow, wow. So because of a friendship, that's why that image is there. Right, wow, so powerful, so powerful. Um, so I think when we um, met, I mentioned um, that in my, I've had many careers and many lives and one of my other careers, um, I was a licensed massage therapist. I don't do that anymore, y'all, so don't ask. Um, I, um, but my first year doing massage, um, I actually volunteered for hospice. And I worked with three women um, who, one had um, um, end-stage breast cancer, one, um, something was, another one with something was wrong with her kidneys. I, I forget, but I actually she ended up living because she was able to get a kidney transplant and then one other person. And the woman who had breast cancer, she was in her 30s and had two small girls. And um, it was, it was really, um, it really, for me, it kind of like shifted my perception or fear around death. And it, it was a gift in a way because um, at, my, at the time my grandfather was dying. He had diabetes and was you know, dying from the debilitating effects of that. And because of that work, I was able to have a conversation with him um, and I able to ask him like if he was afraid of dying. And um, he said no, um, that he had lived his life. Um, he had raised his children. He had done the best that he could and that um, he, he was ready to go and he was okay with going. And uh, we cried together. And, um, <clears throat> but when he passed away, um, that made it, easier because I knew he was okay with it you know and in this society we we have like such a fear around like having these um, conversations um, about death and one thing that's so powerful about that photograph is it's so open <laughs> um, it's it's open and it's accessible and it gives people to have these conversations that are hard but are, are needed in a, in a way to kind of like make peace with these things. The, the, the image is absolutely powerful, absolutely. N not to detract from the fact that a lot of people who might see this image for the first time, it might be triggering for them, it might be quite sad. I mean if you want to understand the wider context of the image specifically, there is a a short film about the image and the background of Benetton using it on YouTube made by Matt Wolf. I mean, but, but when I when I look at the image, for me, knowing now that the other people instrumental in it being taken, the themes of our virtual reality story give you love, family, friendship, and really illustrate the circle of care because the history is that David Kirby was originally estranged from his parents. And after contracting HIV and becoming sick, wanted to move back to Columbus, Ohio to be with his family. Peter and the Kirby's looked after David in his final days. And then the untold story is that because of the care that Peter gave to David Kirby, uh, Peter, who also had AIDS, 
when it mm. was Peter's time to um, depart this life, the Kirby's were there to support Peter in his final moments, uh. in honouring the, the, what the care that he gave to David. So that is a beautiful story for me, because again, it's like you with your grandfather, you can understand that's powerful. That's a story of love. This is a story where a family that was originally broken and now they're, they're together. Not only that is, the Kirby's then went on to become hospice parents. So they took on a huge role and they looked after so many people who'd been excluded from regular health care because of a prejudice and stigma about AIDS. You know, when David Kirby got transferred to the hospice, the people set fire to the ambulance because mm. we were so scared. So scared, yeah. Now, the woman who founded Paternot Hospice, Barb, this hospice is a hospice uh, fundamentally run with a, a, a glow of a faith around it. It's a Catholic-run hospice, Paternoster. Um, and Barb is a, is a Catholic woman, and Peter was also Catholic, but also very spiritual because we were uh, brought up and grew up in Pine Ridge. So we've got that spirituality from Native Americans. And Peter's actual uh, generation back family are still at Pine Ridge, you see. So he's got, uh, and what they did is, uh, Therese and Peter went on a road trip to Pine Ridge together on a motorbike the same year that <laughs> Thelma and Louise was released. With Brad oh my goodness. It's a real life motorbike <laughs> road <great>. trip. <laughs> so all these layers of all this story is that you've got a story of love, friendship and family, circle of care, even a story of adventure hidden behind what originally lo looks to be a 2D sad and tragic image, but you don't know the full story. And so all my journalistic instinct is, being, is popping out, is feeling this. And what we're trying to do in the VR uh, story is you as a user are a volunteer at the hospice. So Barb, so, so Barb welcomes you in and says, welcome, how you doing? And it's a really jovial, upbeat, positive vibe because everyone's doing worthwhile work, everyone's there for purpose. Everyone's there to support each other. And it's then you go into the other rooms to meet the Kirby's. And so the, t the tone ch changes, but it's never morbid. It's always just a, li a little bit heartfelt. So you get the moment where you witness uh, David Kirby pass away, but then you also learn about this amazing journey that the, uh, the two, Therese and Peter, undertook. And within VR, we actually utilise um, archive images that Theresa's took of the trip and of the staff who worked at the hospice to honour the staff who worked there, who's also their stories and told. You know, we've got ones where we've got a birthday cake, in the hospice and they're celebrating and there's a big huddle and it's sort of thing you'd see on any work office up on the wall as a sort of tribute to the to the staff and the team but this has not been seen by the public so again in terms of media and content this archive of Therese Frey has never been seen and so we're hopefully going to open it out and now because it's uh, you know a generation after the people who would have lived through the AIDS crisis open up a dialogue for a new generation of people to understand what happened then you know understanding AIDS now and also just it's very rare that an intersectional diverse story especially from the LGBTQ community mm -hmm. is told in, a, in the VR space that you is know. true 
Yes. You really got to dig hard. Yes. Yes. Um, so when people go into this, this, um, experience, so they meet the hospice owner, Barb, and so what other rooms will they, that, and they go, uh, go into the room where David is and, and there for his last moment. So what other rooms are they, um, going to be walking through? So uh, we originally visualized this as being sort of a walk-in installation. And so that's what we got funding for to create a prototype of this experience last year, which was a trailer of on our website. And um, basically you, you go to the front door, so you'll see the hospice from the outside and you knock on the front door. And what we were originally planning is to have an installation where you would go into a gallery or an art space, knock on a physical wooden door, and an actress playing Barb would answer and be like, hey, come in, welcome, thank you for volunteering. And then what Barb would do is then put the headset on you, uh, you know, on board you with virtual reality experience. And then we, the physical set in, in virtual reality will be mapped to match the physical dimensions of uh, the dimensions in the physical space. And you'll go down the, down the corridor. You go down the corridor into the next section of the hospice. And you meet Teresa Frere. You can see out across Columbus, Ohio. There's a big panorama, a big view. You'll see outside there's Peter's motorbike parked up. And then as you go down the corridor, you'll see there's a private room off to the side. So there's not lots and lots of rooms, but each room has a different tone, a different beat, a different emotion. And so the tone of David Kirby's private room is like the opposite of the reception area, which you first walk into, to really give you a chance to really illustrate to people that there was more going on to this hospice than lots of just uh, sad times and death it was human bonds and connection but also so then you've got emotionally in a in a project space to be happy space to be contemplative because after you after you finish the experience you come back to the reception area and watch a film learn the the deep history of the of the, the famous photograph and get to talk to barb so rather than being popped out of vr and into the rest of reality on with your day you've got a space to discuss and talk so that way you've got a bit of a buffer so that's what we imagined of course with COVID-19 and headsets and interactivity and in-person experiences that's going to be revised because what we're going to do first is do a web-based version and so people can then eventually when we do get the funding we're going to do it on a web-based interactive portal and then that can be the piece which is like hollering at the big funders this is what we want to do we want to make it 3d in an installation have you thought about like what you're wanting to do in regards to like outreach to hospice communities um as well as um yeah like what are you planning in in that regard one of the people we've been working with who've who's, who i've called written this piece with me is is shannon Yi, and and She's a queer woman of colour based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And my uh, story project, we're working in collaboration with to write, um, Susan Peter, um, is formed from inspiration of her story that she told of her falling into a coma, which she told through an audio immersive installation. And it's called Reassembled Slightly Askew, because she had a, a brain injury and from that, uh, fell into a coma. And as a participant in this piece, you go into an installation, 
you lie in a hospital bed and a nurse, uh, an actor playing a nurse, puts the audio headphones on, eye mask over you, and you lie on this bed and basically it's all from a point of view of Shannon falling into the coma. So you become disorientated. You don't have any vision, your, your sight is gone, and it's just all audio, lying on the hospital bed in an art space. And you'll hear the doctors, and you'll hear the doctors talking to you, so the sound will be quite close. But then you'll hear them talking about you further away, away trying to explain to, to Shannon's partner, uh, partner Gronya that she's quite sick, you know, and things like this. Um, and so that really, not just in terms of the narrative and telling this difficult story, but also telling it immersively. Now, Shannon's actually toured that to medical facilities in the US as a training, as a training thing for practitioners in care, because it's, a, it, it's an acquired brain injury that she actually still has. And so then it, it's fair as a, a case study to how to look after and empathize and see from a patient's point of view. This piece has even gone as far as Hong Kong, you know, so it's traveled international. Wow. And I mean, and that's, I mean, that's in terms of audience, that's a whole different audience um, through this medium that you wouldn't normally reach. But also to, I mean, it goes back to that empathy piece as well, like really giving them the opportunity to be in this, this patient's shoes. Absolutely. And what, what also people are researching that reality discovering is that with your brain, is that when you do virtual reality, the experience lasts as a memory. Rather than you reading it from a distance, you're looking at a book or looking at a film, your brain remembers it differently. So some people are saying it's an empathy machine. And then also you've got to bear in mind of the power of this story because people feel like they were physically there because that's what you're trying to recreate in the headset. You know, so we're very uh, much um, thoughtful and considerate about, you know, what we have to do once we have actually done the 3D character design in the environment and everything is do user testing to see how people react to the mood and tone and themes of the piece. Because then what, when you're saying about how we're going to connect to the audience, we'll establish more of the outreach of where we want this audience to go from people's reaction to it. You know, are people going to be extremely upset and we need to include some sort of support and counselling in that moment? Or are people going to connect with the strength of the themes of power and love, friendship? Um, you know, do people want to come out of it and want silence? Do people want to come out of it and have someone to talk to? You know, there's, there's all of that, you know. We want to do some user testing to see what basically resonates with right. this I mean, powerful it's, story. It's really thinking about like the aftercare in a way. With the aftercare. Yeah. Because what a lot of people have talked about is the user experience before you actually put VR headset on, you know, are you sat in a supportive seat? Are you safe? Because essentially what you're asking someone to do is take away one of their senses and take away their eyes. And so you have to be mindful of their physical safety, make sure it's quiet, I and mean, then also, especially with COVID, whether you're going to be separate from people, how you're going to sanitize the unit. So that user journey before you actually do VR is often a miss. I've done VR. I took my mum to see uh, some VR at my old university and we put a headset on. And, you know, the worst thing was it was a scary experience. It was one in the haunted house. Oh, and I no. Like, oh. I was like, no, 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 no. 
Like, we're, we, we as a family do not get involved in scary stories. We do not like horror. <laughs> what, and then my, my mum's watch, watching this thing. It was like something jump, jumping out in front of her. And she's like, ah! You know, so, so being mindful to explain what the story is about. So how do we get people to understand what it is we've come in to see? If they've come as a group, maybe your friend has dragged you along. Have they told you it's about uh, HIV and AIDS? You know, you're coming to a hospice setting. You know, we just have to be mindful of the uh, story beforehand so people are aware what it is. So this is the exciting thing. Because of Sheffield, because all of the industry decision makers I met, just like yourself, we had great meetings. And it's continuing that discussion with people who want to give us fellowships, residencies, opportunity for research with motion capture. So it's all up in the air. It's all moving along and uh, the hustle continues. Jamie's views on filmmaking, authorship and co-creating are a breath of fresh air, particularly when navigating a community that still often centers the voices and experiences of certain people. His challenge to be curious, to interrogate the ways in which stories are lost, and to bring deliberate attention and intention to the stories of those who have been disappeared, is a call to all of us. It is a call for us to rise up and be heard, and to act as co-conspirators in the embracing and telling of our own and other stories. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's at whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Ronell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.